As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Welcome back to the programme that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we dive into this week's show, I want to remind you about our book competition. To be in with a chance to win a copy of Alistair McGrath's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, visit premierunbelievable.com slash C.S. Lewis book and sign up to our newsletter. But now for today's show. This is the seventh episode in our series on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis and our focus here is on literary scholarship and criticism. Now, C.S. Lewis never used a typewriter, did he? That was a conscious choice, wasn't it? It was a conscious choice. I mean, part of the reason was that Lewis had um, a thumb deformity, which meant he couldn't really... um, type properly anyway but that wasn't the real reason um you've got if i want you to imagine using a typewriter not a word processor a typewriter imagine the noise the clacker the clacking you know it really is very very disturbing lewis said you cannot listen to the rhythm of the words that you have in your mind using a typewriter therefore lewis wrote everything by hand and got his brother warney who was a very proficient typist to type it up for him so Lewis, in effect, saw a typewriter as being an impediment to good writing because it prevented you from listening to the word. You have to listen to the words as you write them and get the sounds right. And, and for Lewis, uh, writing was about listening first and then writing it down. I guess hearing that, you think, you know, it's already fairly prolific, the amount of work that he managed to produce. But now thinking every single part of that was handwritten and any changes that needed to be made were potentially handwritten as well before it went to Warney. That just sort of puts the whole, you know, his huge volume of writing in perspective, doesn't it? It does. The other thing that I think is significant here is that if you are writing using a fountain pen, you have to regularly dip it into ink or something like that. Um, it slows you down. And again, Lewis felt that this forced him to concentrate on what he was writing. Um, so what we see here is someone who, in effect, is s- deliberately slowing himself down so that the quality of his initial draft is going to be pretty good. And that, I think, is something that we may have lost through word processing, where we, we want to just write something down quickly and then very often don't bother to come back and edit it. How would C.S. Lewis have been viewed by his students when he was tutoring at Oxford? As Lewis gained in fame, his students became slightly apprehensive of him. One of them says uh, attending a, one of Lewis's tutorials was like entering his room through an antechamber of 
reputation, you know. But they all, they all found him incredibly learned and engaging as a tutor. Even if he didn't necessarily like them, he, he knew he had a job to do and did it quite well. So I think that the key thing to, to appreciate here simply is that Lewis's role as an Oxford tutor was in effect to teach them English literature, and he certainly seems to have done that very well. And uh, he has been described as sort of shabby. Is there a sense in which, you know, his kind of externals didn't matter because he was almost so intelligent that he wasn't thinking about what he was wearing and things like that? Well, that's right. Many of his students would use that word shabby to describe both Lewis's room and him. Um, the problem was Lewis's room was kind of a bit cluttered and untidy. And that was because Lewis wanted to have everything accessible so he could simply get almost something, reach out and get hold of it. But more importantly, Lewis himself um, did tend to regard physical dress as being unimportant and his <laughs> students uh, did notice that. So yes, um, Mrs Moore doesn't seem to have had much impact on the way Lewis dressed himself. <laughs> We've spoken a bit already about the tutorial system at Oxford and how Lewis would have, um, how he would have conducted his lectures. But rumour has it that Lewis would be still getting undressed as he sort of walked into the lecture room. Is that true or is that just hearsay? That is true, um, and particularly in this later phase um, at Cambridge. Um, I remember John Lennox, who, who was a friend of mine, went to one of uh, Lewis's last lectures and uh, that is exactly what happened. Lewis walked in the lecture room door, um, taking his coat off, you know, <laughs> walked straight to the podium, delivered the lecture and put his coat back on and off he went. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, I, I, I think um, I mentioned earlier, Lewis had this remarkable ability to internalise um, his materials so he could he knew exactly what to say, didn't need notes, and knew exactly what he could say in the 50 minutes he had to give that lecture. So it was remarkable. And his students, it was a performance. His students really saw it as being really quite wonderful. And again, his inaugural lecture at Cambridge, where he gave this remarkable lecture on the idea of what the Renaissance fundamentally is. I mean, there were people sitting on the windowsills. I mean, there was such interest in this man's lecturing style. After Lewis became a Christian, Christianity began to play a part in, in his writing as well. Do you know where the inspiration for Lewis's work, The Pilgrim's Regress, came from? Well, yes. Um, as the work suggests, the work is to some extent inspired by John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But um, Lewis thought it was very important not so much to think of progress, but regress. Let me explain what I mean by that. P Pilgrim's Progress is a narrative of a soul journeying through the wilderness of this world and eventually arriving at God. Wonderful. Lewis is saying, well, actually, a story I want to tell is somebody who progresses towards God, discovers God, and then goes back home again, but seeing everything in a new way. And so what Lewis is describing is not simply how he discovered God, but the difference that it made. And the difference it makes for Lewis is you see things as they really are. And that's a, that is a central theme of Lewis's uh, Christian vision. Christianity enables you to see things the way they really are, throwing aside distortions and imperfections. And so for Lewis, um, the Pilgrim's regress is really the account, not simply if he has this deep intuition that there is a God,
portrayed as the, the landlord based on this island, but rather that once you discover this God, that is a transformative experience which utterly changes the way you see and experience the world. So you, you go to the journey the island, discover God, then you walk back home, and as you go through the same territory again, you see it in a completely different way because God has transformed the way you see the world. And who do you think the intended audience was for that piece of work? Was it aimed at Christians? Was it aimed at non-Christians? Or, or was it just kind of a cathartic piece of literature that he was writing for his own purpose to a certain extent? I think Lewis was writing this for himself. I think it actually is um, Lewis putting down on paper what happened to him. But of course, I mean, it can be read by anybody. And um, if you look at the, the, the bit um, in the book which describes this journey, um, in effect, it should be a straight line, but then there are kind of way the badlands to the north and the south, which are about excessively rational and excessively subjective approaches to reality, both of which lead you off the true path. And you can see immediately Lewis is trying to say there's this balance to be had between reason and imagination, between reason and experience. And Lewis is, I think, making it very clear to his readers, I have found the right balance. Maybe you can as well. But also, I think, helps us to understand how in his apologetics, Lewis is always bringing together reason and imagination, not seeing them as different, but seeing them as being part of the same journey or trajectory. With so many of the topics that we're discussing in this series, it feels like we could have a whole series just on one question. And this is obviously one of them. But who were the Inklings and what did they mean to Lewis? Well, the Inklings, I think, were very important for Lewis and, and indeed for, for many. Basically, um, most authors find that they need to talk to other people to get feedback on their work. And, and Lewis, I think, uh, knew this to the Tolkien. Um, Lewis and Tolkien see, have been giving each other feedback. And they began to realize they might benefit from kind of expanding this circle a bit to include others like Hugo Dyson or indeed Warney. Warney, Lewis' brother, actually was quite a good writer. He wrote particularly on aspects of French history. And so the Inklings really began to emerge as a group of friends at Oxford who were interested in two things, Christianity, and literature. And the idea was to be critical friends to each other, to in effect help them develop their literary projects, but also to give them constructive feedback. So in effect, um, they would read material to each other and ask for comment. And eventually, by the um, mid-1940s, it was quite a big group of people, including some significant people like Charles Williams. But basically, the idea is here is a group of friends who respect each other and they're going to try and help each other develop their projects and write them better. So it's very important because everyone needs constructive frame feedback. And this was, in effect, a weekly meeting at which there would be this kind of feedback. Now, obviously, what happened was they became really good friends. So they had two weeks, two meetings each week. One was purely social. That happened in um, the Eagle and Child. And then the business meeting, which happened on Thursday evenings, where they met in Lewis's room, this time just drinking lots of tea, no alcohol. So they could really get down and do some serious discussion of what people were writing. Now, was this something that just happened organically or was there were they intentional about creating this group, the Inklings? I think there's 
a certain degree of happenstance, but there's no doubt that it was planned. That in effect, um, particularly Lewis and Tolkien, really felt the need for feedback on what they were doing. And again, Lewis and Tolkien are giving each other feedback, and there's a sense they might benefit from um, other people being brought in. And of course, um, there were comparable groups to at Oxford, which both Lewis and Tolkien knew about, but none of them had this emphasis on Christianity and literature. So if you like, there were models to hand, which they both knew were helpful, but they decided they would bring together and the right people to talk about this subject, which they felt was really important. So part of it um, just happened, um, but part of it, I think, was deliberately planned. And were there intentionally no women in this group, or is that just a kind of reflection of the time? I'm afraid it's a reflection of the times. Sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that Dorothy L. Sayers was a member. I mean, she wasn't, uh, but they, they knew about her and respected her. But really, it was, typical, it was just representative of Oxford at the time. And also, you've got to bear in mind, you think of um, Warney Lewis, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien. They were, they'd all served in the British Army during the First World War, completely male environment. They had all been to all-male schools. They were based at all-male colleges. So it was just natural to, for the Inklings to be an all-male group, just an extension of what they already knew. There's no bias here. It was just the social reality of the time. Um, I think they would have benefited from um, Dorothy L. Sayers being a member, I have to say, but she wasn't. Lewis did have some really key friendships with women, though, didn't he? Well, he did. Um, some of them were um, uh, complex. Others were more straightforward. Mrs. Moore, I think, um, was very, very important for Lewis in helping him grow as a person, um, developing his social skills, giving him support when he was ill and so on. But as Lewis began to develop as a scholar, well, Mrs. Moore wasn't going to be able to help him either with the business of literary scholarship or Christian apologetics. And he began to develop literary friendships like um, with Ruth Pitter, the poet, and many others, um, particularly, of course, Joy Davidman uh, in the 1950s. Um, and Lewis, I think, really felt that Mrs. Moore wasn't helping him with his academic side at all. And for that reason, began to develop friendships with women uh, that would help him with this. And I think Dorothy L. Sayers is worth noting here because they had a, a rather um, rumbustious relationship. I, mean, I think um, Lewis treated Dorothy L. Sayers as if she was a man, actually. <laughs> if you look at the, the tone of his letters, they're, they're very, it's very interesting. But certainly, you know, they helped each other, particularly thinking about their role as apologists, because you need to bear in mind that by the early 1940s, there were two leading lay theologians and Christian apologists in Britain, Dorothy L. Sayers and C.S. Lewis, and they both knew and respected each other and corresponded on these issues. Now, this is a huge question, um, but what was C.S. Lewis's approach to reading literature? Well, we know actually quite a lot about um, how Lewis understood the purpose of literature. In fact, this comes out very clearly during his writings of the late 1920s. He got involved in various debates with people like F.R. Leavis at Cambridge. But it's very important to understanding Lewis and also realising why he is such an effective apologist. So what Lewis says is this. There are two different ways of understanding the role of literature and indeed the role of the writer. One of them is to say the writer 
and the piece of literature that results is a spectacle. Something that says, look at me. I can write really well. Let me show that off. I can develop these wonderful plot lines. Look at them. And that certainly is one way of thinking of literature. It's a way for an author to show off. But there's a second way, and that is for, in effect, the author and the works the author writes to be seen as gateways to an enhanced understanding or gateways to a deeper vision of reality. And this means, in effect, saying that the author is someone who has seen something, seen the world in a new way, and wants to share that experience with others so they can have that experience as well. And that is what Lewis sees as his role as a writer and indeed the role of literature as a whole. It's all about enabling to people to see things in a new way. So while Lewis is critical of people who say, um, look at me, I'm a spectacle, he's really saying, see, you, see yourself as an author as a set of spectacles. In other words, enabling people to see the world in focus, to see it in a new and right and better way. And that, I think, helps us understand why Lewis uses um, literature apologetically. He's saying, in effect, in what I write, I can help you to see the world in a new way, in a Christian way, and almost invite you to step into that world and see what it's like, ask you how you feel it renders reality and makes sense of your life. So I think it's no accident that Lewis, in effect, has seen the apologetic potential of literature as a, a lens which brings things into sharper focus and helps you to understand why Christianity is such a wonderful account of the world. Well, we know, don't we, how well-read Lewis was, but how did he perceive literature from the past? Well, Lewis it was quite critical of modernist literature, which he felt was rather thin and failed to really either engage with deep issues properly or else offered incredibly thin responses to them. For example, the writings of H.G. Wells. And Lewis has this really important idea of being refreshed and informed by the past. And so one of the things we find throughout Lewis's writings, but particularly in his essay on the reading of old books, is that the past is both refreshing and challenging. It's refreshing because, in effect, it speaks deeply about really fundamental questions like the meaning of life or whether there's a God, but it also challenges rather superficial modern ideas. And Lewis has this wonderful phrase, chronological snobbery, um, which being basically is the idea that the most recent thing is the best thing. Anything that's in the past, it's out of date. And Lewis is saying, no, it's not. It will come back. And it'll come back because it's saying something important and sensible and right. And it's challenging the more superficial responses of our own day and age. And that's one of the reasons why Lewis constantly emphasizes the importance of going back to the past in philosophy, in theology, in Christian spirituality. Because there is gold there waiting to be rediscovered and reappropriated. And so Lewis would argue that his own writings in many ways are kind of way contemporary restatements of these great themes in the past. But Lewis also sees past writers being really important for another reason. Now, we were talking a few moments ago about the Inklings. And Lewis, in effect, is saying that um, past writers are like the Inklings as well. 
you can learn from them. And for Lewis, um, past writers are, in effect, able to correct his deficiencies. Lewis very often would say that, in effect, I will see through the eyes of others, who in effect give me a richer vision of reality than I could otherwise have as an individual. These writers give me a richer vision and I can then write about it. Now, Lewis's approach is really important in the Christian life. It's saying you can learn from the approaches of other people in the past, like Augustine or Athanasius or Aquinas or Luther or Calvin, um, and these people help you see things properly in a new way. So on this point, I think Lewis is really important. He encourages us to value the past and learn from it. Alistair, thank you so much. I feel like there's so much more to unpack, but perhaps that's another series. Um, we're going to move on to another subject in the next episode, but thank you so much. That's all we've got time for today. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson, and Professor Alistair McGrath. And don't forget, we're giving you the opportunity to get a free copy of Alistair's seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life. To be in with a chance to win, visit premierunbelievable.com slash cslewisbook and sign up to our newsletter. That's premierunbelievable.com slash cslewisbook. Thank you for listening and see you next time where we'll be hearing more from Alistair on the thought, life and legacy of C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm.